with you this morning. How about now? There we go. And if you do have your Bibles, I hope you will turn in them to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. You'll find this passage on page 816 if you're using the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs for you. If one of those would serve you, please use it. And if you'd like to take it home, please feel free. Give it away. Keep it for yourself. We'd be happy for that to take place. Matthew 11. Well, we have transitioned now from the second major discourse of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel into a new section, and now, instead of a kind of teaching setting in these words, we have moved into another narrative section, or we could say stories about Jesus' work and ministry on his path of teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And at the beginning of this new narrative section, we come across a familiar character in the story of Jesus that we've seen before in Matthew's Gospel. It's Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. The next last time we saw John the Baptist was in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, and John in that passage was preaching and baptizing people and pointing people to Jesus. But if you may recall all the way back at the beginning of chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, things didn't go so great for John the Baptist not long after we meet him in chapter 3. In chapter 4, Jesus is tempted, but then in verse 12 of chapter 4, it says that Jesus heard that John had been arrested. And So we don't get much more than that, really anything more than that, about John the Baptist from Matthew until now in chapter 11. And as the curtain rises on this new narrative section, we get a glimpse into an altogether brief but eternally impactful conversation between these two cousins, John the Baptist and Jesus. Have you ever had questions for God about whether or not what seems to be happening in your life is what ought to be happening? Have you ever, as it were, zoomed out a little bit looked around you and thought, this is not what I expected. What is going on? Have you ever had doubts about the goodness and wisdom and power of God? Well, I expect that every one of us in this room would have to answer yes to one or more of those questions. And in this passage today, these few verses, is good news for those of us who have ever had questions like those. Part of that good news is that you're not alone because John the Baptist had them too. The beginning of verse 2, we see it said that John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. It's kind of the context for this conversation that's happening here between Jesus and John, and there's three important things for us to note regarding John in this contextual statement. First of all, it's that John is hearing about what Jesus is doing. John heard about the deeds of the Christ. Word certainly had spread in the region about the person and work of Jesus, and even Gentiles were coming to Jesus to receive ministry, to be healed, to be taught. And so the fame of Jesus was spreading. 
But remember, for John the Baptist, he had a vested interest in news about his cousin. In Matthew 3, we get this fascinating and important account of John the Baptist's ministry and his interaction with Jesus. And what John had said in no uncertain terms at that point was essentially this. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. In fact, John had used some pretty serious and sobering language to prepare the hypocritical and corrupt Jewish leaders for Jesus' arrival. If you happen to have been looking at Matthew 3 a moment ago, you can stay there. If not, just turn back really quickly to Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, speaking of Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist was basically saying here, when the Messiah comes, you guys are in big trouble. You think your Jewish lineage is going to make you part of the kingdom or save you from the wrath of God's chosen one? Guess again. John says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, you spiritually fruitless trees are about to get chopped down. He will gather his wheat and burn the chaff. In other words, the holy harvest of God is coming. And don't be too excited about that because your religious hypocrisy is wicked and will be judged. And so that's what John's message was in his preaching ministry to the hypocritical Jewish religious leaders. And so John would have wanted to keep tabs on what Jesus was doing because he, John, expected Jesus to get down to business and to start spiritually chopping down metaphorical trees and winnowing the chaff from the wheat, spiritually speaking. In other words, John was looking forward to the Messiah saving his people and judging his enemies, including those whom John rightly considered to be hypocritical Jews who claimed Jewish heritage as their hope of salvation without any sense of need for repentance and faith. So, first of all, John is hearing about what Jesus is doing, but he's also hearing about it while he's in prison. That's what it says in verse 2 of chapter 11. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. The prison where John the Baptist would have been kept was called the Fortress of Machaerus. And while it's an elaborate structure of great archaeological interest even to this day, and one, by the way, that you evidently can visit on a Holy Land tour, this was not what we might think of in our context as a prison, such as the Adams County Jail, which has running water and at least modern insulation and perhaps even a simple mattress and pillow. Rather, some suppose that the cell that John 
would have spent time in would have looked more like this. And so John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod Antipas because John the Baptist had spoken out regarding Herod's immoral relationship with his sister-in-law. You can turn maybe just a page or two to chapter 14 where we get a glimpse of this in verses 3 and 4. And it says, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so John is in prison because of this fact, standing up against Herod. And judging by Matthew's note in Matthew 4, I'm going back and forth a little bit here, I know, his note that Jesus' departure from his wilderness temptation spot coincided somewhat at least with John's arrest by Herod. And then judging from what history tells us about the duration of the phases and locales of Jesus' ministry, it seems, and scholars and commentators will tell you this, that John the Baptist was likely in prison for at least a year by the time of today's text in Matthew 11. And so, John was interested in the Messiah's judgment, his winnowing, his tree-chopping axe work, and he may have been interested in that specifically for Herod, having been himself a recipient of Herod's injustice, wanting Herod to be a recipient of Messiah's judgment for jailing him sinfully. And so here's this chosen servant of God, the forerunner of the Christ, sitting in jail seemingly for at least or over a year. And what he's hearing about while he's in prison is the deeds of the Christ. Still there in verse 2 of chapter 11. And the word choice for Matthew here in verse 2 at the beginning is important. Notice that John does not say, excuse me, that Matthew does not say that John is hearing about the deeds of Jesus. That would have been an accurate thing to say. He's also not saying he's hearing about the deeds of his cousin, which also would have been accurate to say. Rather, Matthew uses the formal messianic title, the Christ. John was hearing about the deeds of the Christ. Now, did you know, perhaps particularly for those of you in our uh, gathering this morning who are a bit younger, that Christ is not Jesus' middle or last name. Did you know that? No, it's his title. You could say he is Jesus the Christ. We shorten it totally fine by saying Jesus Christ. The, the Greek word is Christos, and its most simple definition is anointed one or even Messiah. Later New Testament authors just used Christ as sort of shorthand at times for Jesus in relation to his nature of being the Savior and the work that he had already accomplished. But strictly speaking, Christ isn't part of Jesus' name. It's his title. And so for Matthew to use the Christ here ought to be for us, and I believe is, telling and important. It confirms for us what we might already deduce about what John was interested in regarding what he was hearing about in relation to Jesus. He was interested in an update on Jesus' messianic ministry. And what he's hearing is what Jesus was doing in messianic 
ways as it related to his person and work as the Christ. John the Baptist believed Jesus to be the Savior, the promised one of old, the one of whom it had been said would come to rescue God's people. He believed it. He preached it. And so to summarize this context here, in the beginning of verse 2, John is hearing about what Jesus is doing, which means that word is being brought to him in prison, in which he had been for at least seemingly a year, and what he was hearing about was the deeds of the Christ that his cousin Jesus was performing. And because of this, second part of verse 2, he sends word by his disciples to Jesus, and we see then in verse 3, first of all, John's curious question. He said to him, verse 3, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? He sends his disciples to ask this question of Jesus. And isn't it interesting where John is or seems to be at this moment? He goes from chapter 3 with bold and fierce proclamations. This is the one. Watch out for him. You guys are in trouble. To now here in chapter 11. Are you the one? The phrase that, that Matthew writes for us that John used is important as well. The one who is to come. That phrase certainly has clear messianic connotations. John is clearly asking Jesus if he is the Messiah. About a year after he had boldly and fiercely proclaimed it and preached it and said, Jesus is the Messiah. And so John is asking Jesus pretty directly here, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for somebody else? And I find this curious. Don't you? Hadn't John somewhat recently boldly called the Pharisees to watch out for Jesus because he was going to judge them? Wasn't it not that long ago that John was evidently excited about Jesus' ministry? But that's actually the point, isn't it? John was looking forward to what Jesus would do as the Messiah and evidently, instead of the winnowing of spiritual chaff from wheat, and instead of the axe chopping judgment on metaphorical, spiritually fruitless trees that John had prophesied, what he is seeing around him is prison walls. A prison cell that he was put in by one of the very same hypocritical and corrupt Jews that he perhaps had in mind. Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, is the one who imprisoned him. And in fact, that very Herod was only the latest in a line of corrupt and wicked Jewish leaders, including Herod the Great before him, who was the one who ordered the slaying of the children at Jesus' birth. And then even before that, the founder of the Herodian dynasty, Antipater the Edumean, Idumean, who was poisoned by his fellow Jews for their regard as having synced up treacherously in commiseration with the Ro Romans. And so while John's question is certainly, in one sense, 
a curious one. In another way, it makes a lot of sense. Because, listen carefully, his sense, his senses were having trouble syncing up with what he believed and what he knew. I mean, wouldn't you be more than a bit troubled if you were in his situation? Have you ever thought something sort of like this in a situation that you've been in? Maybe it has seemed to you at times that someone in your life who is in a position of leadership is leaving something glaringly unaddressed, at least in your eyes. And you're looking to this person who's supposed to be in charge and thinking and maybe even saying, are you going to deal with this or not? This is your job after all. Perhaps you've felt that at work. Perhaps you've felt that in a church. Perhaps you've felt that in some sort of uh, government, politician-related setting. Isn't that essentially what's at the heart of John the Baptist here? I can tell you that in my own vocational ministry leadership context, there have been times when I have looked around me and thought and even said in prayer to God, what is going on? What am I doing? Lord, is this really what you had in mind? And that's coming from some nobody unknown pastor of a small congregation 2,000 years after the resurrection. Imagine how much harder it would have been for the official, appointed, set-apart forerunner for the Messiah himself to be sitting in a Jewish prison for a year, hearing about the deeds of the Christ and wondering what is going on. So it's a curious question, but I think also an understandable one. John had preached about the coming messianic judgment, and those judgments didn't appear to be coming. What John was hearing about the deeds of the Christ was not that Jesus was being quite as direct as John the Baptist was. In fact, he wasn't being nearly as direct as John the Baptist would have perhaps evidently preferred him to be. Jesus, rather, is using more veiled terms. He's teaching through some more abstract and less direct concepts at times to to teach on his messianic fulfillments, and he's going around healing people, being gracious to people who don't deserve it. And so it seemed to John the Baptist, based on what he was hearing, that there were hardly any judgments being proclaimed. Could it be then that John was sending his cousin a message as a kind of a nudge, saying, hey, are you going to get down to business? Kind of hinting through the use of a question. Are you the guy or should we be looking for someone else? Perhaps it's not all that unlike an email that a board of directors could send to a CEO when his or her performance isn't quite up to standards and in a sort of passively aggressive manner say, we could be open to exploring alternate executive options. That CEO would very quickly realize that that message was a hint that he or she was not getting the job done. Perhaps that's something of what John was trying to get across. Or could it be that John was having second thoughts about his hope and trust in Christ? But not a whole lot of metaphorical trees seeming to be chopped down in Jesus' path. Not a whole lot of messianic justice seeming to be done. In fact, John may have been saying, I'm rotting in prison while Jesus is having dinner with Torah breakers and Jewish traitors. 
makes more sense to me that the Messiah's forerunner ought to be part of Jesus's traveling band of healers and demon exercisers and resurrectors, and instead I'm just waiting around in jail. Don't know exactly what he was thinking, but might he have been dealing with thoughts somewhat along those lines? John is looking around his cell, having lived in it for a year, with finite knowledge and wisdom, having a hard time making the puzzle pieces in his mind fit. And remember, John the Baptist, though Jesus would call him the greatest man born of women, is a sinful man like you and me. So he's certainly not above such thoughts. But what about you? Have you ever doubted that what is going on in your life is connected to a good plan from God. Maybe at one point you had an ideal in your mind about what it would look like to be a Christian, to be a servant of God, to follow Jesus in his kingdom work, whatever it looked like as we talked last week, whether that be vocational ministry or lay ministry, serving the Lord, being connected to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but your ideals aren't turning out to be your reality. You prayed for, you pursued, you wanted well-behaved children, a happy marriage, God's blessing on your health and on your finances, and a church that matches all the teaching of the New Testament. And instead, you look around and you've got trouble at home. There's sickness in your body. There's stress coming from your bank accounts. There's discontentment with the church. Maybe John was expecting to hear that the Christ was in Jerusalem, stirring the pot, agitating the Jewish leaders, challenging the Romans. But instead, he hears that Jesus has gathered fishermen to fish for men, not warriors to take on Rome, not great orators to argue and reason with the Jewish leaders, but these nobodies going around healing even Gentiles along with the Jews. And maybe, like John, you expected something different from your relationship with Jesus or from your experience of Christianity or from your life in the church of Christ. You didn't expect other Christians to be quite as messy and incomplete as it turns out they are. You didn't expect life in the body of Christ to require sacrifice and discomfort and vulnerability and weakness for the good of Christ's mission. You're not a big fan of the slow pace at which God is at work in someone else's life as you judge them from a distance or in your own. You see, unmet expectations like John the Baptist's and ours can be very hard to deal with. You know what this is like. And it often can lead to doubts. And friends, if the greatest man born among women struggled with doubts, certainly we do too. And I just want to say that if you're sitting here this morning and saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't doubted Jesus a day in my life. I say to you, oh, you will. One day, in one form or another, even if it's just for a moment, if David doubted, <laughs> and you and I are no David, and if John the Baptist doubted, and you and I are no John the Baptist, then you can be sure you and I will somehow someday, some way, deal with doubts. And I suspect that many or even all of us in this room would say that we have. And so this is a curious question from John considering his past, but it's also understandable. But next, we see 
in this passage, Jesus' corrective response. And I think Jesus' response to John's curious question has two parts, essentially. And I'll put it in plain terms, and then we'll look back at it a little more deeply. Response number one, go read your Bible. Number two, trust me. There's certainly more to it than that, but I think that's essentially what it boils down to. Look at what Jesus says in verse four. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. So remember, these are John's disciples who came to Jesus to ask him a question on John's behalf, and Jesus is sending them back and telling them to provide John with their own eyewitness, and you could also say ear witness, I suppose, evidence. And what is it? Verse five, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. So it's healings, it's resurrections, it's preaching, it's evidence that the messianic blessing is taking place. Remember, Jesus was, we often speak of Jesus at times in Christianity as prophet, priest, and king, fulfilling these biblical roles in the kingdom of God. He was the ultimate greatest prophet. And he is communicating here with another prophet, John, a man whom Jesus regarded very highly. As I already said, he deemed him as a great man. And we have to remember that when reading and examining Jesus's response to John's question. Because at first glance, it might seem that Jesus's response is simply the, the display of proof to John of his own, of Jesus's Messiahship. But if you think about it, for it to be only that doesn't make quite as much sense because John already had heard about the deeds of the Christ. He was connecting these things that Jesus was doing as Christ-like deeds. And so John wasn't, doesn't appear to have been lacking information about the deaf hearing and the lame walking and the dead being raised and the blind seeing. He had ostensibly heard about that, about that already. John, it seems, wanted to know why the other stuff wasn't happening yet. Where's the justice? Where's the vengeance? When is this metaphorical tree chopping going to start that I prophesied? And that's where remembering that both Jesus and John were prophets is important. Let me invite you to turn back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is found on page 595 if you're using the Bibles in the backs of the chairs. Follow along as I read a few of these verses here, just uh, 3 through 6, and then we'll skip down to verse 10. This is a, a prophecy many years before from Isaiah. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped and then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy skip down to verse 10 just for time's sake and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing everlasting joy shall be on their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away what was prophesied here in isaiah 35 regarding the messiah's deliverance vengeance and salvation and then the exact things that jesus lists in matthew eleven five 5 in response to john's question 
He tells them to go tell John that they are seeing the very things prophesied in Isaiah 35. You could, if you're in Isaiah 35 still, you could flip a handful or so of pages down to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, that's on page 620. Isaiah 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, plant the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. There's a phrase in that section that should sound familiar if you've been following along this morning. Chapter 11, verse 5, as Jesus is listing the eye and ear witness evidence that he wants the disciples of John to go back to him with, he also uses the phrase, tell John this phrase, that the poor have good news preached to them. And that's right from Isaiah 61 as well. Isn't it interesting as well that Isaiah 61 speaks of those in prison being unbound? Perhaps a reference to this passage would have brought that to mind in John's heart as well. And so, on the surface, it might seem that Jesus is simply trying to win the argument through Bible proof texts. Jesus certainly could beat us all in a sword drill. He knew all the proof texts. You've had discussions with Christians before, haven't you? Or perhaps even an argument where it just seems like they're far more interested in showing you all the references they know than they are at getting to the heart of whatever it is that you're discussing. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here at all. His purpose is far deeper and more significant than just throwing proof texts at John and his disciples to win the argument, to silence the doubts and move on. I wonder if you've ever hung out with a coworker for fun and tried to make sure that your time together was going to have no connection to work and you've said something like, no shop talk, okay? You ever said something like that? Every time Brian and I say we're going to do that, shop talk comes up. You know how that goes in your own context as well. I think what Jesus was doing here was a sort of shop talk with John. These are two prophets communicating about their understanding of prophecy. And I think Jesus' response here was not really about proof of Messiahship, but correcting John's theology. Because at the heart of John's question was not so much the evidence of the grace of God as it was the evidence of the justice of God. And so it makes sense then that Jesus would respond to John by pointing back to these Old Testament writings that John certainly knew that contained language of both. Both the grace of God and the justice of God. Do you see what I mean? Some of the early church fathers and reformers, such as John Calvin, whose commentary I enjoy referencing in my studies, thought that John the Baptist's question here was primarily, his sending of the disciples with this question, was primarily for the sake of his disciples, that they would be ensured of hearing Jesus' teaching. 
But as another commentator, a more modern commentator who I greatly respect and appreciate, D.A. Carson, puts it, there isn't any evidence in the text to support that view. That all John was doing was simply sending disciples for their own benefit. Rather, what Carson argues, and I agree, is that John is asking this question for his own sake, using these messengers to get the message across. I think if you just take John's words at face value and then read it with the context of Matthew's whole book in mind, it makes sense to understand that what's happening here as being related to questions and doubt indicating incomplete or incorrect theology on John's part. And so what John apparently meant when he asked Jesus in a somewhat accusatory tone, are you the guy or not, was that he was that what he had heard didn't quite match up with what he had thought Jesus' ministry would look like. Because remember, John was this hellfire and brimstone kind of guy. And what he understood was that the one coming after him, Jesus, his cousin, was just going to blow everyone away in comparison to what he did. I've been baptizing you with water, John said, but the one who comes after me is going to baptize you with fire. And before he knows it, John's in jail for preaching the truth, for standing up to Herod. And then he hears word that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and fishermen and sinners and healing people, including those who weren't even Jews, and being far less direct about everything than he, John, had been, and appeared to be sort of taking his time in his kingdom ministry path. And what John needed to remember was that Jesus was beautifully, if I can use this phrase, multi-directional in his ministry. He really, Jesus, that is, really was there for both healing and division, as we saw just a few passages ago. For both teaching and correction. For both gentleness, as we'll see at the end of this passage, and judgment. Not just one or the other. And yes, those Old Testament prophecies really did say that the Messiah would come to judge and to bring vengeance and to save Israel from her enemies. But it also said that the good news would be preached to the poor, that the sick and the lame and the deaf and the blind and the dead would be blessed through the Messiah. But it seems that John, like so many of us, was more focused, listen carefully, on the aspect of Jesus's ministry that excited him the most. John was a great man. Jesus said so. But even he needed a little correction now and then, just like we all do. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here, correcting John's theology that was a bit incomplete. I believe that what Jesus is saying here in his response to John through referencing his healings and the resurrections and the preaching was essentially, yes, yes, I am the guy. Trust me. Remember the big picture. Messiah's ministry is both judgment and blessing. I am at work. Trust me. And so while these blessings of the messianic ministry were certainly proof of the kingdom's breakthrough, we might say, I think Jesus was also graciously assuring John that the judgments were going to come. And they just hadn't quite arrived yet. I think what he was saying was that though the miracles were evidence of the Messiahship, faith 
was still necessary. To be on board with what Jesus was doing, it was still going to require faith because not all of it was going to go according to everyone's expectations. And so Jesus' response here was not just, look at all the things I've done, that's proof that I'm the one, but rather, these miracles are part of the plan. Don't worry, trust me, judgment will come too. And so that's why I say that part of Jesus' response to John was, go read your Bible. Sort of go reread Isaiah. (laughs) The other part of what I'm calling Jesus' two-part response was, trust me. In other words, this vengeance stuff that you're probably looking for is part of the plan too. Judgment will come, but be assured, first, I am preaching salvation before I get to all that. Trust me. Might not seem like it's going according to plan, but if you look at the scriptures, you'll see that it is. And isn't that just so often what you and I need to hear? A call to go back to the scriptures, to hear the message of the promise of the Messiah's salvation, and then to trust him. Because, my friends, the scriptures are clear from beginning to end. The Christ, Jesus, the Christ, is the Messiah. He has come to save his chosen people through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and he will judge all who do not embrace him. And all who are then in him through faith have every reason to continue to trust him, even as they did at the beginning. And so, friends, we need to preach this news, this gospel, to ourselves every day. Because we need it every day, just like John appeared to need it that day. Jesus responds to John with the gospel, as it were, that the Messiah would come to bring blessing and judgment and his people would rejoice verse 6 of our passage ends this brief sort of long distance not so instant message conversation between jesus and john and blessed is the one who is not offended by me isn't it interesting john gets his own personal beatitude but this one stings a bit doesn't it Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know, while the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 are quite encouraging to us, this one stings. I thought about trying to think of some sort of corny joke about them being B-attitudes and the sting. Couldn't come up with anything. So I figured I would just throw that out there for you to figure out. The word translated here, offended, carries the connotation of a stumbling block. In other words, Blessed is the one who does not get tripped up by me. Carson, in his commentary, puts it this way. Blessed is the one who does not find in Jesus' ministry an obstacle to belief and therefore reject him. And that's certainly true. Because the one who ultimately rejects Jesus will be anything but blessed. In fact, quite the opposite. And so Jesus is implicitly challenging John and us to re-examine the expectations and presuppositions that we have about what Jesus is supposed to be and what he is supposed to do and what it's supposed to look like for us to be on team Jesus and then to just trust 
what Scripture says about it. Friends, isn't it true that we want things conformed to us? We want Jesus, his ministry, his message, the calling of Jesus on our lives to fit into our lives nicely and neatly like a nice little Tupperware container on our well-organized shelves. Although our Tupperware shelf is not organized. And as Christians, we just want to get him out when we need him. Asking for granny to be healed or for a pay raise or to wield him as a weapon against our children to scare them into good behavior. And then we put him back up on the shelf for the next time that we need him. And then we think we have it all figured out and how it's supposed to go. But as you may know, my friend, trouble comes when what we are experiencing then doesn't match up with the way that we planned Jesus to fit into our well-organized, perfectly tailored to us plans. And then what happens when suddenly our expectations aren't being met? Doubts can come. Why? Because our senses need to be recalibrated. They have been uncalibrated, as it were, and we need recalibration according to the gospel, the message of the good news of Christ, his person, and his work. So often, we are, we are put or put ourselves, more like, into a sort of delusional state that is unplugged from the realities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means is to submit to him, to trust in him, to be devoted to him, even when that includes unmet expectations, even when that includes seasons of doubt and disappointment and times of waiting on him. I know that for many of you in this room this morning, there is waiting on the Lord happening now. There are disappointments with his plans. There are unmet expectations about how life was supposed to go. Oh, my friend, hear these words from Jesus. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. Who is not tripped up by his sovereign kingdom plans. By his perfectly timed will. Friends, what Jesus wants from you and me today and every day is to constantly be going back to his word and trust him. When things aren't going the way they used to go or they're not going the way you want them to go, go back to his word and trust him. When doubts rise, go back to his word and trust him. When trouble comes, go back to his word and trust him. And you know, John is to be commended here. He did exactly the right thing with his doubts. He brought them to Jesus. Did you know that if you take your doubts to Jesus simply through prayer, that is an act of faith? Undoubtedly, at some point in your life, there has been someone in your life, whether a parent or a grandparent or a teacher or a mentor of some kind that has come to your mind whenever you're facing some kind of challenge that feels for you too heavy to handle alone. And if you're a humble person, you've thought of this other person in your life and a desire to bring this burdensome matter to them for help. And they've come to mind and you've texted them or you've called them and you've set up a meeting and talked. That's very much like what John was doing here. And it is exactly what we need to do with our own doubts. 
bring them to Jesus. And so I suppose the call of this passage to us this morning is to simultaneously seek to avoid doubting, like John the Baptist seems to have been dealing with, and to mimic the way he dealt with his doubts. Because while doubting is totally understandable, it's not a place that the people of God stay in. Where we stay, where we dwell, where we live as Christians is trusting in our Christ, believing what the scriptures say about him, and then finding rest and peace in him. Even when we're struggling with our own doubts about Jesus's kingdom ministry in our lives. So may he help us to trust him no matter what. Let's pray. As always, dear Lord, we thank you for your word. For the comfort, for the conviction, for the assurance, the correction, the the edification that it brings. We love your word, and we love the one that your word is about. We love Jesus. We want more of him, and we want to grow in our trust in him, even when things do not seem to be going the way we would have planned them. May we, as a church, and certainly as individual men and women and boys and girls and as families be characterized by trust in Christ in accordance with what the scripture tells us regarding the good news of, what, who, of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Help us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue in silent prayer and meditation for just a few minutes.